0: Welcome to Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on the show today, we'll talk about artificial intelligence and its potential applications in historic preservation. But first, much of the crime-related legislation being considered at the state capitol right now involves undoing criminal justice reforms that were passed here in Louisiana not long ago in 2017. Proponents of that idea point to increases in crime that we have seen since those reform laws went into effect but critics say the COVID-19 pandemic is to blame for high crime rates. Others say there wasn't adequate investment in the programs necessary to make those reforms successful. So talk us through the reforms and current efforts to repeal them. We have Barry Irwin, president, CEO of Council for a Better Louisiana, part of a non nonpartisan group, Reset Louisiana. Welcome to the
1: studio. Oh, thanks for being or having me here. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So first, uh, just as a reminder, what are the criminal justice reforms we saw back in 2017 and which of those are being targeted now?
1: Well, if you go back to 2017 and, and really even before that, uh, Louisiana had the reputation for being, you know, the incarceration capital of the world and so many people in jail. So there was a lot of research that was done in uh, particularly some other southern states, peer states, and, you know, kind of off the top of the head, what we kind of found was – that we looked at some states, and I'm targeting Florida and South Carolina, for instance, we had very similar violent crime rates, very similar nonviolent crime rates, And yet for nonviolent offenders, we had two times more uh, people incarcerated in South Carolina and three times more than Florida. So that looked like it was way out of whack and it was costing the state, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. So the reforms were basically aimed at trying to look at that uh, population of nonviolent offenders to see if we could reduce that number in terms of the incarceration, target more the violent offenders and take those nonviolent offenders, get them back out into society with reentry programs, supports and that type of thing and make them productive, save the state money, number one, and number two, hopefully uh, decrease recidivism and returning to jail. And all those things did happen. So that was kind of the key of those reforms. I think we can talk more about it, but I think broadly speaking, the concern about where we are right now is that even though a lot of the specific reforms are not Per, you know, specifically targeted, what we're seeing in some of these things is opportunities for these nonviolent offenders to be caught up in some of these new laws and find themselves going back to jail for longer periods of time or staying in jail for longer periods of time, which basically kind of undoes the, the point of the reforms.
0: And fast forward to today, what are some of the arguments around the proposals we have going through the legislature right now? In general, what could the effects be of enacting them?
1: Well, I think what the big argument we've kind of got a variety of things because you get into the concealed carry, the changes in the public defender's office, and those types of things. But I think the general argument out of this is that you know whether it reduces crime or not, I think is a question. But I think the proponents would say. What the what the legislation is aimed at doing right now is providing a deterrence, some kind of thing to say that look at what we're doing on these penalties. Look at how we're cracking down, looking at how we're going to be very specific on how long you're going to have to serve and be in prison if you were convicted of these things. And by doing those things and keeping people in jail longer and letting them know that's what's going to happen, that will somehow be a deterrence to crime. Now, there are a lot of questions about whether that will be successful or not, but I do think that's kind of at the heart of what they're trying to do. We're speaking
0: with Barry Irwin of Council for a Better Louisiana, a member of Reset Louisiana's Future Coalition, encouraging thoughtful discussion within the ongoing special legislative session on crime. Reset Louisiana's position is based on database decisions. Its position is based on database decisions. What does the data say about the best practices known to reduce violent
1: crime? Well, you know, that's a complicated subject and there's no, you know, silver bullet there. But it's a couple of things. I mean, number one, a lot of this has to be done at the community level, at the local level. Um, Things like, you know, community policing, drug courts, you know, targeting, you know, high-risk individuals to try and help them early on, um, you know, with mental health or whatever other supports might be out there for those. Those are the things that are, you know, primarily local functions. But at the state level where we're talking about really – I think the biggest thing is trying to get these folks who are offenders, who get into our criminal justice system and are going to get out because they're nonviolent offenders, but they could be coming back in a, in a more serious way to get them the help the support they need that when they re-enter and all of these nonviolent offenders will they will be getting out of jail that they have you know the education they can read and write they have some um, um, work skills um, other supports mental health drug um, uh, support that type of thing to make sure that they don't come back that's the kind of evidence at the state level that we've seen has been the most effective, really, in trying to make sure that people who may have been offenders do not become repeat offenders in in worse ways than they were to begin with.
0: Now, looking at the current session,
1: do we have anything addressing that? You know, not a lot. I mean, I will say this. Um, there's not much in the way of targeting those things that we've had in, in the sense of taking some of the programs that we have and trying to get rid of them or even cut the funding for them. That's a good thing. I think the flip side of that is, though, that there are concerns about the cost of some of these other things that are being passed. So if we're going to be keeping folks in jail for longer periods of time, that's going to come at a cost. What we've been doing right now with the criminal justice reforms has actually been saving money on incarceration and using that money for those reentry and training programs and that type of thing. I think the concern is that the dollars for that type of thing, which have been effective, Uh, are going to get you know lost in the shuffle so to speak as we spend money on incarceration and that's where we might see something that's not going to be good won't be immediate probably but it could be you know a few years down the road
0: Hmm. we'll be watching that barry Irwin, president ceo of council for a better louisiana thank you for your time today
1: oh great to be here thanks so much adam
0: This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Among the suite of criminal justice-related legislation being considered now at the state capitol, a provision to return to treating 17-year-olds as adults in our criminal justice system, it would walk back reforms made in 2017, which put 17-year-olds into the juvenile justice system. Our guest today, Louisiana Illuminator editor Greg LaRose, has written about this issue and is here to highlight some of the nuances. Greg, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it.
0: So as it stands now, could you refresh us? What does the current legislation propose?
2: So in Charlotte, it would treat all 17-year-old offenders as adults, which is an option that district attorneys already have. Uh, So what lawmakers are considering is essentially forcing their hands to require that, especially for violent crimes, uh, that these 17-year-olds would be handled distinctly as adults in the criminal justice system.
0: Okay. What are the arguments on either side of this? So you
2: have on the conservative side a real desire to attack what's perceived as an increasing crime problem driven by juveniles. Uh, it's really hard to say that statistics back that up. Um, what also is a compounding factor is that the efforts to treat more 17-year-olds and youth offenders in uh, a fashion that emphasizes rehabilitation rather than punishment, it's kind of just backfired on the state. Uh, of course, it goes back to what Governor John Bell Edwards pushed through with bipartisan support from the legislature to steer fewer people, including juveniles, into the prison system. Uh, And really, in short, the state wasn't set up to handle that. And as a result, you've seen uh, fights, riots, breakouts, uh, injured staff at our juvenile facilities around the state. And the legislatures now, the way they see it, the Republican majority, that is, is that, hey, let's start treating these 17-year-olds as adults. Uh, And of course, there's a cost associated with that.
0: Right. As you highlighted, legislators were largely in tune with the Raise the Age Act when it was passed in 2017, just a few years ago. Now the legislature is looking at repealing it. What's changed since then?
2: You've seen a huge wave of conservative lawmakers take control of the legislature. Now it's a super majority, one that would override a governor's veto. And here's the thing that with Jeff Landry in office, Uh, There will be no vetoes. He's said that he would sign these. uh, The governor and legislators campaigned on promises to crack down on crime. And now over these past several days, their legislation shows that, you know, they're going to live up to those promises.
0: We're speaking with Louisiana Illuminator editor Greg LaRose about the 17-year-olds as adults proposal in the state legislature right now. It's one piece of Governor Jeff Landry's special session on crime that's underway You mentioned some of those problems with Raise the Age since it was enacted, some of them high-profile riots, escapes, violence in juvenile detention. Was this an inevitable result of the change to considering 17-year-olds as juveniles rather than adults? Why did it happen? What's the explanation?
2: I think there has always been that lack of full commitment from lawmakers to provide the necessary resources to create a truly uh, a system that embraces the approach that, hey, you know, these juveniles, we can't keep them housed here forever. They do have to go back into the streets, uh, go back home. And I don't necessarily know sort of editorializing here. I I, I would argue that there was never the buy-in legislatively. And I would think to some extent from the executive branch that realizes, hey, you you can't just warehouse these youth offenders. There needs to be a discernible path to them. Not only going home, but doing so with the ability to avoid what sent them to prison in the first place. And that takes us down the larger argument of uh, education, of necessary social services. That seemed to sort of uh, trip up this raise the age effort from the get go.
0: So as far as raising the age, it it sounds like we got as far as raising the age with the legislature, but we didn't quite get as far as actually supporting that policy with programs to divert juveniles and the kind of investment that might make it successful.
2: Right. And what's interesting now is that the state seems to be heading down this road of creating regional juvenile detention facilities. Uh, There's one that's in its nascent stages in the Acadiana region, another one in the River Parishes the Florida Parishes facility is sort of held up as the model. Basically, what they do is create a taxing district and use those proceeds to fund the construction of their own juvenile jail for where youth are held before they are sentenced. So, therein, you're still dealing with the need for a state facility where they actually serve their time. And the state's kind of making very, very um, plodding progress in that regard. Hmm.
0: It sounds like a little bit of this might be an effort to maybe outsource treatment of juveniles from the state to the localities with these local taxing districts. Is that sort of how that goes?
2: I I think that's part of the equation, too. And the sheriffs of every parish are, I think, going to have a voice in all of this, because if you're going to start treating more 17-year-olds as adults, It means that you're going to ask the sheriffs to hold them at the local jail. The issue arises uh, involving the constitutional rights of these young offenders. The Constitution says they have to be kept uh, separately in terms of sight and sound from the adult prisoners. And if you're dealing with, uh, say, a rural parish that doesn't have this sprawling jail complex... Uh, So you're then adding an expense on the sheriffs that perhaps, you know, they're not ready to ask taxpayers for, but they will ask the legislature. They will ask the governor. And given that the Louisiana Sheriff's Association backs the governor on his tough on crime approach, it would seem that they're all on board with this.
0: Finally, what does the evidence show? What do we know is the result of treating teen offenders as adults? Does it help criminal justice efforts? What data do we have, Louisiana, relative to the rest of the nation, which also saw increases in crime, for instance?
2: The data does not support a tough-on-crime approach, whether that be putting more juveniles or adults behind bars. There's been no definitive study that says, okay, yeah, this is how you reduce crime. And that's another realization that uh, the Republican supermajority in the legislature has been asked to address. And uh, you know, when it comes to discussions of the cost, their response has been, well, we think when it comes to uh, addressing the victims, uh, to ensuring that someone is held accountable, you really can't put a price tag on that. <laughs>
0: Greg LaRosa is editor of the Louisiana Illuminator. Greg, thank you for your time today. Thanks for the invite. And Louisiana's special legislative session on crime is expected to wrap up over the next few days. Stay tuned to WRKF and WWNO as we continue coverage on what comes out of that legislative session and what passes across the governor's desk. We'll be covering the topic tomorrow and Friday here on Louisiana Considered. From WRKF and WWNO, this is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. Artificial intelligence, AI. It's a solution that's increasingly being applied to a growing breadth of technology challenges and non-technology ones as well. One that you might not think of, preservation of historic artifacts. And to tell us how, we have Louisiana-based AI expert Margot Randolph. She's co-founder of Creative Ventures, a software company. Margot, thank you for being here today.
3: Thank you for having me. So happy to be here.
0: And Margot will be leading a discussion about AI and what its role could be in historic preservation at the Amistad Research Center, Tilton Hall at Tulane University, this afternoon at 530. So, Margot, first of all, could you familiarize us, if you will, what is AI? It's quite a buzzword these days. I'm not sure we all understand what exactly it is. Could you just outline what AI is and what makes it a good tool, for instance, for something like historic preservation?
3: Yes. So AI, standing for artificial intelligence, uses machine learning models that are trained by programmers to help us do amazing things. So um, the AI buzz has been big lately. Um, one familiar household product that uses a lot of AIs, Alexa Voice and Google Voice. And there are many AI applications across healthcare and transportation that really help us to build these machine learning models, train them, and to automate a lot of processes.
0: So you used a, a term there that's also a little bit murky to me, machine learning. Could you tell us about machine learning and what role it plays with AI? What's the human way of explaining that?
3: Yes. So what machine learning is, is basically you think about it as you are training a model to do something and you're feeding it with large, vast amounts of data to train this model. And so on a much larger scale, um, there are a lot of different AI models that are fed with hundreds and thousands of billions of pieces of data. And so it's very important that we're training the model's using you know certain mindsets and certain um, values in the system because it will return what it's been trained on.
0: So let's draw that line from AI to historic preservation now. Could you tell me about how AI could be used in historic preservation, particularly of Black history? What's the problem that you're looking to solve?
3: Mm-hmm. So what's great about AI, what sort of had me thinking about this for historic preservation, is that we can use AI to analyze vast amounts of data, identify patterns. So we can use computer vision to scan documents and to digitize them and preserve them to be used in the future. So really, it can help us make documents from the past accessible to the average person on a daily basis and to historians that want to go deeper into our history.
0: Yeah. And with history, it sounds like accessibility is one of the big factors because, so what if you have a historic document and it's sitting in a file cabinet in a basement somewhere that's completely accessible as long as you can go in that basement and go find it and you know it's there? Um, You're Mm -hmm. talking about taking it a lot further, uh, sharing this information, making it available, making sure people actually know it exists.
3: Exactly. And just making the information digestible to people is really important. We can use it to create platforms actually, so that users can explore and interact with the past. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to to have people engage with history.
0: Yeah, talking about engagement, tell us a little bit more about the importance of historic preservation, particularly with black history. This is Black History Mm -hmm. Month. You're giving a talk during a Black History Month program. Is there a problem you're looking to solve?
3: So that is a great question. So definitely for African-American history, people that have come over to America from Africa and spoke their indigenous languages, there's an opportunity to learn about those languages that were spoken. And that's African-American. I think it'd be great to sort of learn more about the original language that people spoke from the past. In another sense, I think AI could be great in terms of Black history, for helping us identify underrepresented Black historical sites and overlooked narratives.
0: We're speaking with Louisiana-based AI expert Margot Randolph about how AI could help preserve Black history. So AI is being trusted here. It's being put in a place of trust. And that's a difficult thing where AI probably seems intimidating or at least not especially trustworthy to many people. What should the general public know about AI that might address some of those fears?
3: Yes. So you're right. A lot of people are intimidated by AI. A lot of people don't quite understand it. And to be fair, I do think a lot of people should be paying more attention and should be concerned too about the way AI is being used in not so favorable ways and in some unethical ways. But first, I think it's important to demystify AI and for people to understand and pay attention to what it actually is. And I will recommend people to try it out just on a minimal level, try it out on a daily basis to see how it sits. And quite frankly, AI is all around us.
0: And you're touching on a couple of cautionary notes there that I wanted to ask about Many social justice minded people will argue that A.I. can be biased in the same ways as the humans who help create it or the culture that that A.I. is trained off of what might be the dominant culture. Is there a risk of A.I. exhibiting an anti-black bias? How do you address that?
3: Yes, uh, that has been a huge concern. In the field of AI, there's many research studies that show that a lot of these uh, machine learning models and facial recognition models, in one instance, in one model, over 90% of the time, it misgendered Black women's faces. And so there are a lot of issues with a lot of these algorithms and models because of who is building them and what data is being used to train these models. And as a woman in this space, I mean, there's huge underrepresentation still of women in STEM, women, you know, that are building these applications. And so a lot of times the bias just comes from the people that are building it. They're not considering the diverse representation of all the people in the world. And what we need to do to mitigate this risk in AI is to have diverse and representative data sets and to implement really strict and rigorous testing for bias during the development process. It's critically important that we continue to educate AI developers on cultural sensitivity and inclusivity. And I think it's very important that the general public and all of us as consumers hold these people accountable.
0: Before we go, what work are you doing to make sure that these data sets, off of which AI is based that they're inclusive of diverse populations, that black people are represented. How are you making sure of that?
3: Mm -hmm. So even in my uh, organization, Create Ventures, when we design our products, we actually use a term called liberatory design thinking, which um, I learned from the National Equity Project. What we like to do is even before we design any product, whether it's AI or not, We ask the leaders, the founders, the developer to really reflect on their own biases, and we reflect on our own biases before we approach it with product design. That's how I approach it, and I think there are many other ways um, other organizations can approach this.
0: Margo Randolph will be leading a discussion about AI and what its role could be in historic preservation at the Amistad Research Center, Tilton Hall at Tulane University this afternoon. Margo, thank you for being here today.
3: Thank
0: you so much. And that's been Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. A thank you to today's guests Barry Irwin of Council for Better Louisiana, Greg LaRose of the Louisiana Illuminator, and Margot Randolph. Our managing producer is Lana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays, 12 noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.
3: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support
0: from Tulane School of Public Health.